Just as a reminder, this is not investment advice and is for information and educational purposes only. And so we met, uh, had a high-dose psilocybin experience, and that within one session actually got me rid of the anxiety disorder and the depression. It was a mind-blowing and life-changing experience. Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. Psychedelic medicine is transforming mental, physical, and spiritual health, and entrepreneurship will be key to expanding access. Business Trip explores the business models and origin stories of the most interesting companies in psychedelics. I'm Greg Kubin, and in this episode, I'll be co-hosting with Business Trip's co-creator, Matthias Serebrinski. So Matthias, why did we do an episode on Compass Pathways? Well, Compass is a mental health company whose initial focus is psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant depression. And it is worth saying that they consider themselves a mental health company first and foremost, not a psychedelic medicine company. And I would say that it's interesting because they are currently in phase 2B clinical trials. And it's basically the only company outside MAPS that is this advanced when it comes to getting psychedelic medicine through clinical trials. I'd also add to that that their protocol is unique in that it combines a synthetic form of psilocybin called COMP360 with psychotherapy, where the patient meets with the therapist multiple times. And the FDA has never approved a therapy combining a drug with a therapy before. And yet Compass Pathways actually received breakthrough therapy designation in 2018, which is only granted when a therapy is significantly better or potentially significantly better than the standard of care. In many ways, Compass kickstarted the retail investors' interest in psychedelic medicine. They were the first company that got listed in the NASDAQ last year. In this episode, we speak with Lars Wilda, the co-founder and chief business officer of Compass Pathways. And what's cool with Lars is that he's a serial entrepreneur. Compass is the 10th company that he's founded. So Lars was in a way, solving his own problem. He was very open about the fact that he discovered psilocybin therapy through his own mental health journey. He suffered from depression and anxiety and found tremendous help in psilocybin therapy. There were a few other things that I thought were cool about this episode. One was how Lars talks about Compass's focus on scalability and distribution. And it struck me how historically a psychedelic retreat is really a small business, right? Only seeing a few people at any given time. And in Compass's case, their psilocybin therapy for treatment-resistant depression as their first indication could be prescribed to millions of people. And so as they think about the protocol and they think about how they're going to get it out there, and there's there's so many fine details that they need to consider. And they're not just thinking about each individual patient, but they also have to think about, well, what does this look like at scale when potentially millions of people are in the system? I also like that we kind of nerded out on the clinical trial designs, um, how nuanced clinical trials are, and how you build this organization that actually has a competitive advantage as you're bringing more medicines to market. 
One other specific thing that came to mind about their approach is how they're not just thinking about individual therapy one-on-one, but rather group therapy models. And that's something also that has historically been used in the retreat setting. I'm also happy that we kind of addressed the elephant in the room. We talked about uh, their IP strategy. He addressed how he's thinking about patents, composition of matter, data exclusivity. He'll cover that in the interview. I think they have a very solid strategy there. It was interesting when we got into competition and what other companies can and cannot do. And that will have a lot of implications towards the future of other companies using psilocybin for the treatment of different mental health disorders. Yeah, it's still very unclear how the what the landscape will look like in a few years. But what we do know is that Compass has a pretty broad patent strategy. They have coverage of the composition of matter, how their actual crystalline synthetic psilocybin is formulated, uh, paired with the protocols for indications like major depressive disorder and treatment resistant depression. But, you know, as we talk about in the episode, they've definitely been scrutinized and in some instances criticized for their approach Uh, potentially being too broad. So that was definitely a highlight of the interview for me. Yeah, so um, quick disclosure, Matthias nor I own stock in Compass Pathways. But maybe we should. This is actually the first interview that Matthias and I are co-interviewing. Nice. Yeah, thus far, it's been either himself or myself. And what we realized was that, A, we like chatting with each other. And so it's it's kind of fun to do that. But B, you know, in addition to the podcast, we also have been investing in this space. And often when we're speaking to founders, it's not just one of us, but it's two of us. And I often find that we complement each other well. And I'll ask a question. And then I often find that like, there was actually maybe a better question or another dimension to it. And so we're kind of experimenting the tag team approach here, which I think will be more fun too. Lars, thank you for joining Business Trip for a special interview. I would like to get started with your origin story in terms of how Compass Pathways came to be. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks for having me and, and happy to talk you through the way that Compass came into being. Uh, we're three co-founders. Katya, George, and me. We have a diverse set of backgrounds. Katya is a physician. George is a psychologist by training, but a serial entrepreneur. And I have been an investor in the past and also serial entrepreneur in tech. I have been running and starting tech companies uh, over the past 10 years. And um, one of these companies I was running as the founding CEO, I employed a lot of my friends. Um, and unfortunately, five years into the journey, uh, one of these friends very unexpectedly died from a massive heart attack. Uh, very prominently, he was the lead singer of a band in a concert. Uh, quite a few of my employees attended that concert and, and called me that night. And um, at the same time, there were a couple of things in the company that were not going great uh, with a free riding uh, shareholder. And then there were some personal problems as well. And, you know, as so often happens in life, you know, these things uh, sometimes then all happen at the same time. And that left me with my first experience with a mental health disorder, uh, which was a generalized anxiety disorder. 
uh, as it was diagnosed later uh, with panic attacks. And I'm typically, you know, it's very difficult to stress me out and I'm a very relaxed person. So it just didn't fit my self-image. I was running the company as the CEO and um, I typically enjoyed spending time with people, but I realized that uh, interacting with people was increasingly stressful. And so I reached out to a psychiatrist friend of mine who first put me on SSRIs. Um, they didn't do anything for the anxiety disorder, but I think they generally worsened my state. So I became depressed over time and then moved through kind of the arsenal of uh, psychiatric treatments. Um, I was eventually put on tricyclics and with all the side effects that come with it. And that unfolded over the course of a year and I did some therapy and eventually came to the conclusion that uh, I needed to move on from the company where everything reminded me of my friend and I felt trapped in a certain situation. And um, when I decided to leave and hand over the CEO position, I informed my board of directors and my venture capital investors. One of these investors was a good friend of mine, Christian Angemeyer, who called me immediately and said, hey, I'm really sorry you're not feeling well. Do you know what psilocybin is? And um, I'm German. I, I hadn't heard the word before, uh, I must say. And then he said, oh, look into Zauberpilze, uh, magic mushrooms in English, and uh, look at the research. And if it's interesting, give me a call back. Now, if you suffer with an uh, anxiety disorder, you're <laughs> very diligent. And so I read everything that I could find um, over the course of two weeks. And I called him back and said, look, I'm convinced I want to try this. Nothing else has really worked for me. And so we met. Uh, I had a high-dose psilocybin experience. And that within one session, actually, got me rid of the anxiety disorder and the depression. It was a mind-blowing and life-changing experience. And coming out of it, I still improved over the next couple of days. And I had so many insights into my life and what mattered, what didn't matter, led me to make a lot of changes in my life. And I believe that eventually these changes uh, led me to never become depressed or anxious again. And I became very intrigued about the prospects of this therapy and thought about, okay, how can we get this to patients? I knew nothing about drug development, but uh, when I was working in growth equity, I started a company that is doing in vitro fertilization treatments, a large clinic group in Europe called Vivaneo. So I thought, okay, maybe we can start mental health care centers and then treat people with a natural substance in the Netherlands. That would not scale. And then luckily, again, my friend Christian introduced me to Katya and George, who he got introduced to through a common friend. And he said, look, they have a very similar story to yours. Their son suffered with OCD, anxiety disorder, depression, suicidality, and found tremendous help in ketamine and psilocybin, which got them very involved in funding research in the field. And they're currently deciding whether they should start a company and develop psilocybin as a medical treatment through the regulatory pathways. And so the next day I hopped on a plane, flew to London. The three of us met together with Christian, got to know each other and decided to build Compass together. Only a few weeks later, uh, we then founded the company officially in uh, summer 2017 and have been building Compass since, initially with a very strong focus on uh, treatment-resistant depression and uh, psilocybin therapy. And we're now going broader into many other uh, mental health indications. And uh, yeah, that, that led me to this place. Um, at the moment, I'm very much focused on the strategy What's next for Compass? Uh, where are we going in terms of new treatments, new molecules, digital interventions? And it's a very exciting time to be in mental health. It's an origin story where you experienced the problem and as an entrepreneur felt the had the inclination and the pull to solve it, not just for yourself, but for others. I guess one question from your own trajectory, previously, it sounds like you were working more in tech and Compass Pathways, working on partially pharmaceutical, more like drug development. What was that transition like? And I guess, how did you get up to speed quickly on more of the biotech side of things? Like, how did you learn the landscape? Yeah, that is a great question because uh, when I initially joined, I was probably in the core of what we were trying to achieve, uh, the least experienced team member. 
what I brought to the teams that I had uh, raised very significant amounts of venture capital funding for my other companies before. And so I brought that angle to Compass initially. And I said, look, I'm just going to join you, help you raise the first round of funding. I think you're going to do great. And, and and I was actually thinking about then doing something else or, or thinking about the clinic side of the administration. And um, and yeah, I think then I just had phenomenal colleagues uh, that knew what they were doing. They taught me a lot. And I'm a strong believer in just uh, you know learning uh, on your own terms. So I bought dozens of books, uh, went very deep into uh, regulatory, preclinical development, clinical development, and to try to understand what it takes to to develop psilocybin. And I think what, what sets it apart a little bit is that it's not a small molecule development program where you would say, look, you need the expert who has done it a couple of times before. I think from a drug development perspective, that is something completely new to develop a therapy uh, that is integrated indeed with psychotherapy, uh, digital support tools, et cetera. So it's a completely new field. And I think that is what you see in any new industry that arises, that you have people that are coming from the outside in and, and changing uh, the status quo. And I think we're seeing the same now in, in psychedelic therapies. You seem to have liked the biotech route. You're now an investor in a few companies that are biotechs. You're a director in Sutura Therapeutics, Curses Pharma. So what is intriguing or interesting for you about biotech? Yeah. So I love, I, I've always been in love with science and I, I feel like I strayed away from it after high school by studying business. And I, I actually still you know, all the way through, I've always been reading you know, nature science and, and, and stayed very close to what's happening in science. And it was very serendipitous that, you know, starting Compass then led me to dive into, into drug development. And, and I see huge opportunities there. I think um, when we think more narrowly about biotech, I think it's this amazing moment in medicine development where you have the fields of technology. And with that, I mean, for example, AI and big data advanced modeling growing together with standard drug development. You have elements of robotics and all of that speeds up and the development process of novel drugs and makes the likelihood of success much higher. So when you've seen the field of drug development over the last 50 years, you, you saw a constant decline of drugs that made it to market per dollar spent. And I think we're just at the cusp of where this will turn around. And I think over the next 20 years, we will be solving many major diseases through these technological advances. And I think, you know, psychedelics are case in point where we didn't discover psychedelics through any of these new technologies that are now being brought to the field of medicines development. But what we did with it is we are much more closely understanding what psychedelics are doing to the brain on a molecular level, on a cell level, on a network level, that has only become possible because of the modern tools that we can use now. So, you know, there's the typical VC question, why is this happening now? Why didn't it happen 10 years ago? Why is it not happening in 10 years? And I think there are a couple of elements that led to that, one of which is um, the scientific innovation that has happened and great researchers like Robin Card Harris, David Nutt and uh, Franz Bollenweider, et cetera, showing how psychedelics mechanistically lead to these changes that improve patient outcomes. And that made it a much easier dialogue than with regulators to say, look, we know why this might work. And, you know, we want to run large scale clinical trials to prove that that is actually correct. I want to go back for a second to your own personal story. And you mentioned that you suffered from treatment-resistant depression and generalized anxiety disorder. I think you're the first president of a public company that has disclosed uh, suffering from treatment-resistant depression. At least it's not common. How intentional is that? How do you go about it? And you know, what has been the reception from the public markets and, and professional environments around your disorder? It's a great question, Matthias, because uh, I've, I've never been asked that before. 
But I, you know, when I came out out of the closet, so to speak, with my diagnosis, when I was still running another company, Springlane, it was very interesting when I saw the reaction of my investors, because some of them opened up about their own mental health issues. And then they were speaking about their portfolio companies and how many of their founders are suffering with depression, anxiety disorder, OCD, personality disorders, etc. So then it became very apparent to me that, you know, I'm not alone. There are many others out there. And so I just made the conscious choice in 2016 that I would always openly speak about it. Because I think it's important for people to see that you can fully recover and that you can lead a very normal life and that there shouldn't be any stigma around mental health suffering. And so I've been very open throughout. And it was very interesting because then that also was connected to my psychedelic experience, which I find um, is maybe the more tricky bit because people would think, oh, you know, psychedelics, it's an still an illegal substance treatment modality. And what I realized when I started speaking, especially with American investors, I would say that every second investor would tell me, hey, it's great you're sharing this. Uh, I found a lot of support with psilocybin, MDMA, and they shared their own stories. So I realized that once I started opening up, others started opening up. And this became really a part of our company. And I think that is uh, common across the co-founders that we realized that everybody has a story. And what we mean by that is that we know that 25% of people on this planet are suffering with some type of mental health disorder at any point in time. So if you think about it, that, that is every fourth person, right? So everybody has someone in their circle of friends and their family that is suffering at this very moment in time. And sometimes these people don't speak out about it. And, and I believe that actually worsens the situation. And so I, I think it's really important to talk about it. I have only had very positive resonance from investors, employees, any other type of stakeholder. So I hope that, that you know, this helps others to also come out of the closet and speak about their own uh, suffering and further destigmatize mental health uh, problems. I want to talk about the Compass protocol and the patient experience. Um, so your your first indication that you're targeting is treatment-resistant depression, which is a condition where individuals who have depression but have tried to treat it at least two ways unsuccessfully will then be diagnosed with treatment-resistant depression and that's where I guess you guys would come in as a potential therapeutic. So would love to kind of talk through, I guess, a few things. One is the decision to target that indication. And I guess the second would be what the protocol and the patient experience is like. Yeah, treatment-resistant depression. Uh, that's, that's a bit of a weird term because it sounds like people are resisting treatment, uh, which is not the case. It's, uh, as you said, right, people uh, are not served uh, by the current treatment. Uh, the inverse of that is that some people are served by it. And I think that's important. And that goes to the point of, you know, why treatment-resistant depression and not major depressive disorder, which is the umbrella indication. The reason for that is that two-thirds of patients respond really well to standard of care, which is SSRI treatments, SNRI treatments, standard antidepressants, and it helps them uh, kind of over the hump. They recover from their depressive episode and they go on with their lives. Now, SSRIs and SNRIs are genericized drugs. They're extremely affordable and psychedelic therapy will always be somewhat expensive because of the need of having a therapist present, uh, prepare the patient work with the patient during the session and integrate the experience afterwards. And therefore, we looked at uh, where's the need the biggest. And so that is what we found in treatment-resistant depression. These patients have exhausted kind of the standard of care. And then it becomes very much uh, guesswork by the psychiatrist where they are then exploring treatments such as atypical antipsychotics, ketamine, other atypical antidepressants, somatic treatments, ECT, TMS, etc. And these patients do not really respond well. And that is also where the cost to the system is the highest. So the annual cost of a TRD patient runs somewhere between 17 to 20,000 a year. And that's a perpetuity cost because these patients do not really improve. Now, that is a patient segment where it's very likely that we will be able to get psilocybin therapy reimbursed. 
And that has always been the focus of the company since we started it, that we said it's all about accelerating patient access to evidence-based innovation in mental health. And the access part is really what we're focused on. We believe that only if we can get psilocybin therapy reimbursed at scale uh, will the treatment really scale to the global need in, in TRD. That has been the focus. In terms of the treatment modality, the original, uh, I would say, psychedelic therapy has been developed at Harvard University uh, under Tim Leary and his colleagues uh, in terms of the set and the setting. So we used this model and worked with some of the world's leading practitioners that are active in the academic trials to prepare patients adequately. The initial focus is on creating therapeutic alliance between the patient and the therapist, uh, for the therapist to understand the patient's history and teach the patient a couple of coping techniques for the actual psychedelic uh, therapy session. That session then happens in a mental health care facility where the patient in our phase 2 trial works with two therapists, um, a lead therapist and a co-therapist. The drug is given in the form of oral capsules that the patient ingests and um, is then uh, invited to lay down uh, on a bed, put on eye shades and earphones and listen to a soundtrack that guides the patient through different emotional states. No active therapy is happening on that day. The focus there is uh, for the patient to be open uh, to whatever shows up during the experience and stay present uh, with that experience. And the therapists are only there for support and you know for practical things like a bathroom break uh, if that uh, happens during the session. And um, post the uh, treatment day, the patient then enters the final phase, which is the integration phase, where the patient works with the lead therapist to process the deep insights that are uh, typically generated uh, through a psilocybin therapy session. The, our therapy approach is uh, similar in a way to ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy and uh, method of levels. So very much a mindfulness-based uh, therapy approach. And it's very interesting. The, uh, the patients um, undergoing psilocybin therapy often feel like they processed a lot of uh, deep-rooted uh, psychological issues. Um, when we look at, uh, at the data from the academic trials and some of the open-label trials, what we, what we often hear is, uh, wow, this therapy felt like 20 years of psychotherapy condensed into six hours. For the first time, I had real insight into my suffering. I finally understood why I became depressed. I see a clear path forward. And that is, again, why it's so important that um, the therapists are very much focused on getting the integration piece right. So you have a few sessions with the therapist, then you have the psilocybin therapy uh, experience, then you have a few more integration sessions. What I haven't fully resolved in my own mind is this idea that maybe the, the patient is has treated their treatment-resistant depression, but there's still a lot more work to do, right? That thing that came up that caused their depression actually was something really deep, really, you know, a powerful thing. So where do you see the role of the patient after they've completed the protocol to check in with a therapist? Is it something that they're then responsible to on their own? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, there are the limitations of running clinical trials. Um, so we can't introduce uh, too much of a variability uh, from patient to patient. The patient can access integration therapy, integration sessions uh, based on need. Um, so some patients might be fine with one session, other with two, other with three, depending on what came up during the experience. That's a clinical trial, right? And then we're following these patients until the primary endpoint after three weeks and the secondary, secondary endpoints after uh, 12 weeks. I think um, what's probably more relevant is how is that going to unfold then in the real world? And you know, I, as you said, right, I don't believe it's a cure. And uh, life happens to all of us, right? Even if, if you improve in the very moment and you process something, something else might happen to you and you might become depressed again, or you go back to an environment of situation of learned helplessness or re-traumatization event and, and you're back to where you started, right? I think these, these things have been seen in some of the MDMA trials, have been seen in the psilocybin trials. 
um, it's it's not a magic bullet. And I think that's why we, we caution everyone that this will likely be an intermittent treatment um, that patients will be able to access on a neat basis. As you say, some patients might be able to work through their baggage within one session. Others might need more sessions. And then again, it's really important, as you said, the integration part, right? You might learn things about your past, about your own behaviors that will need quite some time to integrate. I think that that is the role of therapy uh, to then work with the patients, make sense of this experience, um, integrate this appropriately. And I think I would say that what is very encouraging, what we're seeing in, in one of the programs that we're involved in with uh, patients that uh, suffer with a major depressive depression diagnosis due to their cancer suffering is that in that study in Maryland, um, patients are prepared, treated and integrated in groups of four. And these patients form a very strong bond over this experience. And networks are formed out of these little groups that want to stay together, they want to stay connected, they're exchanging their experience uh, with each other. And I think that could be a role going forward that uh, indeed, when you think about how is psychedelic therapy going to scale up in the real world, um, that this could be moved much more into a simultaneous administration model where patients are going through these experiences together and groups can form that then can integrate together and have this kind of accountability uh, wrapper, I would say, to the therapy. It's interesting that as you're you know, explaining this, one thing that comes to mind is how heterogeneous the treatment could be. Group therapy, individual therapy, you know, multiple sessions, one session. I want to go deeper into how you designed the uh, protocol. Let's start with dosage. There's this term in psychedelia that is the heroic dose, uh, but there's also the high dose, the low dose, the uh, micro dose. How do you think about which dose to use for your treatment? Yeah, that, that is a very important question, right? And um, so we have three arms in our phase 2B program. Uh, we treated treat a total of uh, over 230 patients uh, in that study. And um, they were randomized uh, to either one milligram, a 10 milligram or 25 uh, milligram dose. The one milligram is uh, basically an active control group. It does not have any psychoactive effects. Then there's a 10 milligram dose, which is a medium intense uh, psychedelic experience. And the 25 milligram dose is a high dose experience. And we've picked that dose based on the work both in the late 1950s and 1960s and then over the past 20 years with psilocybin. It has been shown that this dose range seems to most reliably lead to improvement in a whole variety of disorders. We now begin to understand why that might be. Um, so it seems that very reliably at the 25 milligram dose, patients uh, go into a, a transcendental egolessness state, which when we look at the neurocorrelate, what does that mean in terms of what's going on in the brain? We see that there's a disintegration of network connectivity in the brain, predominantly or uh, specifically the uh, default mode network, uh, which constitutes our sense of self. Uh, a network that's very much implicated in when we're thinking about our past or when we're planning for the future. What psychology science has shown is that there's an unhealthy overstrengthening in that network connectivity in patients that suffer with affective disorders. So often represented by ruminatory thinking patterns, learned helplessness and negative attention bias. And so this disintegration of that network seems to lead to a normalization of thinking patterns paired with strong increases in neuroplasticity and strong decreases in neuroinflammation. And therefore, it seems to be that the 25 milligram dose very reliably results in this state. Now, uh, at the moment, I would say this is still at the hypothesis stage. Um, so we're going to know very concretely uh, later this year, once we unblind the data, if that is true, um, if we're going to see the, the difference between the 1, 10 and 25 milligram dose. But our hypothesis is that the 25 milligram dose will the dose that we take forward into the phase three program. What about the fact that certain people have different weights? How do you control for that? 
Yeah, that is interesting because this seems to be largely debunked. So we're seeing that most academic trials as well are moving to a fixed dose regime. There are indeed some biological factors that might influence the distribution of the drug. But that doesn't seem to be body weight. Blood volume, for example, could be a contributing factor. But therefore, I think with a 25 milligram dose, this seems to be sufficiently high, at least in in depression-related and anxiety-related disorders, to reliably lead to a high-dose experience as measured by, for example, a mystical experience scale or oceanic boundlessness scale as a proxy for the downregulation of the default mode network. And when we look at it from running a clinical trial, you want to standardize where you can, and uh, dose is one such element. One other question about the product, which is called Comp360. Do patients or anyone else who has tried it, employees, report any differences between that experience and the actual psilocybin mushroom experience? That is an interesting one. I think what I can point you to is the phase one program that we ran where we looked at the subjective reported effects on the 10 and the 25 milligram dose. And they were consistent with experiences that patients had in patients and volunteers had in other psilocybin studies. Now, in the uh, clinical program, uh, we're limiting the amount of patients that can have had prior psychedelic experiences to 10%. So most patients wouldn't be able to compare between a recreational uh, dose and psilocybin. Now, I would say just looking at, you know, at the molecule, psilocybin, uh, psilocin, at least is the main psychoactive component uh, in magic mushrooms. I think there's this nice anecdote where Albert Hoffman, when he synthesized uh, psilocybin for Sandoz in the 1950s, uh, went, went to Mexico and uh, shared a pill with his uh, psilocybin with uh, Maria Sabina, uh, the curandera that was um, introducing the Western world to magic mushrooms. And she confirmed to him that his pill contained the spirit of the mushroom. Now, I don't know how good an evidence that is, but uh, what we do know is that indeed uh, psilocybin leads uh, in these academic studies and now these uh, clinically regulated studies uh, to the beneficial outcomes. And, and that is really what, what matters to us. So if you're, you have three different groups in your study and the control group is one milligram, there is a body of evidence that demonstrates that a microdose still has the neuroplastic neurogenesis benefits. And so what we were talking about was whether that would potentially create positive outcomes for people with TRD, but I think that's the purpose of the clinical trial. Maybe it will. It was just kind of thinking through the trial design of why one milligram and if if you think there's that chance that some people would actually benefit from it yeah that is a very relevant question why the one milligram dose and and the idea of the choice of the one milligram dose was actually how do you go about blinding in such a study right Um, because the likelihood of functional unblinding is uh, is very high as said we're recruiting largely naive patients naive to the psychedelic experience into that study and all these patients know they will receive an active dose of psilocybin so what that allowed us is to manage the expectancy bias but again it's the likelihood of functional unblinding when you're in the 25 milligram arm is very large so how do we remain the blind in the study is by uh, actually the Deploying fully independent raters that are blinded to the study design, the nature of the study drug in the clinical trial. And they are then assessing the patient's depression state over time at the various time points. And so they're not part of the therapist staff that might have observed the actual therapy session. So that's very important. Now, with the one, there's still this raging debate, I would say, on, you know, does microdosing do something? Does it work? You know, even if it does, I think that it would have a dose dependent effect, right? And probably you would have to dose it over time. And so we don't expect the one milligram dose to have any meaning 
meaningful antidepressant effects. And I think when you look at the literature, what science has shown thus far that seems to be consistent, um, I would say, for example, uh, what was interesting in Robin Card Harris's study in a major depressive disorder, where he compared escitalopram and therapy to psilocybin therapy, where eventually he showed that psilocybin therapy is non-inferior to escitalopram. The escitalopram arm actually also got to one milligram doses. And what's interesting in that study is that despite the small size with only 57 participants, interestingly, psilocybin on every single measure, at least numerically, outperformed escitalopram plus the one milligram dose. So we are very comfortable that we won't see any major effect from the one milligram dose, especially not a long-lived one. And therefore, you know, I would say that also the choice of the primary endpoint will solve that issue in that, you know, even if there's a marginal on-the-day effect from the one milligram dose that should very quickly wear off, uh, we're actually, for regulatory purposes, assessing the depression state at week three. And so our expectation is that until then, what we're going to see is purely the drug effect and the assumption that the high dose will clearly uh, separate. So I have two more questions about the trial slash therapy, and then we'll get to the business side. Matthias, I know you're you're itching to get to that. So uh, one is a quick question, one's a medium question. So one question, you had mentioned the, the primary endpoint, and I feel like this could be a good opportunity for our listeners to kind of talk about in clinical trial design, how there are primary endpoints and secondary endpoints and what primary endpoint you chose and how you measure it and basically how it's judged. Basically, in your uh, statistical plan, you stipulate uh, what you're actually trying to answer scientifically in your study. Um, and depending on that, you pick endpoints where you take measurements. In our case, uh, the depression state of the patient. Uh, in our study, we're assessing that depression state by the uh, Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale. Um, that's a questionnaire that's administered by, again, a blinded and independent rater that at the various time points uh, engages with the patient to understand where they are in their mental health uh, journey. And the primary endpoint is really relevant to say, does the treatment work or doesn't it work? And then the secondary endpoints are answering more scientific questions, especially as they relate in our case to durability of the effects. Uh, so we're assessing the primary endpoint at uh, week three, and then we're following the patients for another nine weeks to week 12, where, for example, looking at the proportion of responders that maintained an improvement in the depression greater than 50% in order to understand you know, how good is that treatment over time, for whom does it work for prolonged periods of time, for whom doesn't it work. And that will then also influence the design of both the phase three studies and some of the more, let's say, mechanistic studies to answer you know, if somebody did not respond or did respond really well at week three, but then relapsed into the depression at week 12. What do we learn about this patient? Could that patient have been helped by another session at week six, for example, how would we design a study to answer that question? So it's very important for us to look at both of these endpoints, the critical one obviously being the primary endpoint that will allow us to then progress into the phase three, both in North America and Europe. Got it. Okay, my last question, how many people are signing up for your trials? Yeah, it depends on what trials you look at. So we, we're involved in a lot of signal generating studies in various indications, and we see huge demand for that. I think uh, what I can say by now is that we recruited extremely rapidly into our treatment-resistant depression regulatory trial as well, despite a break that we had due to the COVID situation. And um, unfortunately, notoriously, these treatment-resistant depressions are very poor recruiters because there's very little interest typically by patients. They have exhausted all kinds of treatments already, and you hear things like, oh, I don't need another pill. Uh, nothing has worked for me anyhow. And so we we see that there's much more excitement around psilocybin therapy. Now, that also comes with a couple of problems. Uh, you want to make sure you recruit the right patients uh, into the studies. I think that's, a, that's, that's crucially important. 
And many depression trials have failed because they didn't recruit the right patients. So patients that had other disorders and felt like, oh, I want to try this. Maybe this also works in, in depression. And so we prevent that by having actually physicians refer the patients into the study. So we're working with local psychiatrists and GPs that are referring their treatment-resistant depression patients into the study with the patient history. So we actually understand their patient journey. We understand what drugs they have been on, if they actually fulfill the entry criteria and also the exclusion criteria. So for example, in the study, we are excluding patients with a family history of schizophrenia or prior episodes of psychosis, borderline syndrome, and a few other exclusion criteria. And that makes sure that we have the right patient uh, enrolled in the program. Makes sense. Uh, okay, business. Matthias, why don't you kick off the business side of this conversation? Let's talk business. So I want to start by breaking down your model. And one interesting thing about it is that it is not just a pill, right? And so it includes components of biotech company, but also components of a healthcare company, so to speak. And so I would love for you to break down how you think about the model, what it means to be vertically integrated, what your centers of excellence are. Yeah, I think you're making a very important point, right? What's going to get approved eventually is not a small molecule, but a therapy and everything that comes with it, right? And including the training of the therapist, qualification of the therapist, the actual administration of the therapist and uh, any digital support tools. And that is what you actually have to develop through the clinical trials process. And that is what eventually gets approved. And then obviously the question is, how do you scale this? And um, so part of our business at the moment is setting up uh, centers of excellence with leading academic or commercial partners. You know, those are basically psychiatric clinics of the future, how we envision psychedelic therapy should be brought to the world. In these centers, we're uh, training therapists, we're running uh, signal generating clinical trials, we're training therapists, and we have a place where we can actually then take entrepreneurs that are setting up psychedelic treatment centers, uh, new mental health care clinics, uh, as well as uh, insurances that can come there and see how uh, this treatment will be uh, delivered uh, in the future. And um, yeah, our, our business model is really developing uh, psilocybin therapy and other psychedelic therapies in various mood disorders, beginning with treatment-resistant depression, other depression disorders, but then also going broader. So we're exploring uh, psilocybin as well in eating disorders and uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders, including, for example, body dysmorphic disorder in suicidal ideation in anorexia in uh, chronic cluster headaches and PTSD in order to understand uh, which patients could really be served by this treatment. And once we understand that we get a good signal uh, in any of these patient populations, then the goal is to drive these programs very quickly uh, through phase 2B and phase 3 studies all the way to approval. I think that is something that I would want to highlight. So we don't understand ourselves as a biotech company. Biotech is part of what we're doing, pharma as well, but we understand ourselves as a mental health care company. So we're always keeping the patient in mind. We have patients on our advisory board, uh, scientific advisory board, and um, our goal is to actually commercialize um, psilocybin therapy and actually bring it to the world and really work deeply with uh, healthcare systems to make sure that people can get access to this therapy. So is part of the idea that if you get approved for TRD, treatment-resistant depression, with your COMP360, the synthetic psilocybin, you will be better positioned to get approved for other indications, such as the ones you just mentioned, using the same COMP360 because you have already gotten approval in the earlier stage clinical trials from the health and safety side of things. You don't need to go through that again. You can just apply that to other indications. Is that right? That's a very good point. Yeah, I, I think there are clear uh, synergies because you can use the same data package in terms of all the toxicology work and the CMC work, et cetera. So, so that is absolutely true. But then again, every disorder is different. So the therapy model might vary. I think where, where we find another synergy is in just running late stage clinical trials. So 
Uh, in the phase 2B program, we had 22 clinical trial sites in 10 countries, and you need to get the approvals. You need to make sure everyone and every part of the supply chain is adequately licensed with the uh, drug enforcement agency so that you can actually get drug product to the sites and that people are allowed to deal with a Schedule 1 drug. And we're scaling that up now in uh, preparation of phase three. So we're going to have between 90 and 100 sites in the phase three program. And um, so we're going to be operating the largest infrastructure to really run late stage clinical trials. And, and that will be our focus going forward. And we are entertaining discussions with other companies in early stage and preclinical development of novel treatments that do not want to undertake that part of the business. Um, so they don't want to be a multinational drug development company. And I think that is uh, the role that we want to play. So the part of driving these late stage clinical trials all the way to approval and then making sure that we actually commercialize. And when we say that, um, the focus here really on both distribution and reimbursement. Again, it's uh, something that I keep highlighting. Uh, without reimbursement, psychedelic therapy will not happen at scale. Let's talk about that. So what do you project to be the cost of your treatment and what needs to be proved to insurance companies for them to actually cover these treatments? Yeah, that's a complex answer. I think uh, the easy answer is uh, cost effectiveness, um, but then every system has their own way to define that. And uh, basically what the system looks at is what does a patient cost me today with the administration of a new therapy? Can I reduce that cost? Some systems are also looking at can I improve that quality of life of that patient, even if the cost to me is higher. And um, so you have to go see this actually country by country. So there was a big part of our work over the last three years to work with all European countries and their HTA bodies to understand what data do we need to generate so that they will actually be able to not only approve psilocybin therapy, but then also reimburse it later. And the answer will lie partly in our phase 2B program already. After that, we will understand how many patients do really respond, uh, remit, and when do they relapse. Um, and that will then answer the economic modeling question of how often do you have to deliver a cytosine therapy to a patient? And then you compare that to the cost of the patient to the system uh, today. And therefore, we're deeply thinking about scalability of this treatment, right? I spoke about simultaneous administration in the phase one program. We've given cytosine therapy to up to six participants at the same time. We're now seeing that under our IND, psilocybin can be given to four patients at the same time. They can prepare and integrate together, and that will inform as well how we think about how to scale this therapy in the long run. I want to go back to Greg's question about COMP360 potentially being extended to other indications. And I will wear my investor hat, my early stage investor hat for a minute and ask for your help. What does it mean for other companies that are developing psilocybin therapies or companies targeting TRD with other psychedelic therapies? Yeah. So let us tackle the other psychedelic uh, question first, because that's easy. So if somebody develops a different treatment uh, for a given indication, they can come to market. What they need to show is that their treatment is efficacious. And I think in terms of reimbursement, um, they need to show in most countries, at least non-inferiority. Uh, so they need to show that it works uh, equally well, like psilocybin therapy in that indication. In some countries, they might even have to show superiority for reimbursement. Now, the second question is more complex to answer. So if somebody else develops psilocybin, for any indication. So first of all, I think um, let's take it if someone doesn't develop it. So generic competition. So generic competition will not be able to enter uh, the market for at least seven and a half years in the United States and up to 11 years in Europe based on the regulatory exclusivity once COM360 psilocybin therapy gets approved. Now, then there might be other companies developing psilocybin really through clinical trials um, all the way to market. And then it depends much more on our patent position for what we're developing, which includes our specific polymorphic form of crystalline uh, psilocybin. The way to synthesize that specific polymorphic form and the use of that polymorphic form 
in the indications that we're tackling. So if somebody would take the same polymorphic form and uh, develop it for any other indication, they would still infringe on our patent position. If somebody picks another polymorphic form if that exists and, and they would develop that polymorphic form, uh, they could absolutely come to market. What if it is not a specific uh, polymorphic form, but it's um, generic psilocybin? Now that becomes a difficult question to answer because then we don't know what is in there, psilocybin. So any solid form uh, will be some type of polymorph. And, and the question is, you know, would their drug product contain our polymorph or wouldn't it? Uh, if it would contain our polymorph, they would infringe on our IP. If it does not contain our polymorph, they would not. I think people shouldn't underestimate what it takes to develop a psychedelic therapy all the way to patients, both in terms of just sheer effort, but then also in terms of capital, right? Developing psilocybin for any given indication will cost somewhere between three to 500 million in capital that needs to be raised and, and adequately spent. Uh, so it's a huge task. And I think um, doing that creates another barrier of entry for any, any also runs. That is a great segue to keep my investor hat and ask you another question, which is, you guys were really good at fundraising. What is the secret? Yeah, I think this, well, I don't think it's a secret. I think it's um, the recognition of investors that there is a huge issue and that there is a potential solution for that huge issue. And then it's all about getting in front of enough people that buy into that vision uh, and can understand that this might actually work. I think that we did well uh, to, to convey kind of the state of the research and the nature of the problem and also that it's a growing problem, right? I think, uh, you know, we always talk about the COVID pandemic. I think we're also in a mental health pandemic uh, with constantly rising numbers. Uh, and people are very well aware of that. And you now see not only a psychedelic uh, science renaissance, I would say, but you see a real renaissance in mental health research. And that is something that maybe uh, your listeners might not be so aware of. But when you look at the average pharma company that was running trials in psychiatry, uh, the psychiatric drug development typically is set in their neuroscience divisions. Now, what pharma has done over the last 25 years was a very strong focus on Alzheimer's and dementia following the amyloid beta tau entanglement uh, hypothesis. And they put over a trillion dollars into Alzheimer trials and none has worked. I mean, there's there's now obviously you might be aware of this huge debate uh, by the FDA approving a drug recently, which I feel has a good chance of being pulled again. And so they wasted a lot of capital there. And so many pharma companies actually said, look, we're not going to do anything in neuroscience anymore. They sold their franchises or they closed their franchises. And with that, oftentimes they also killed their psychiatry franchise. Now, without pharma being available, uh, biotechs didn't get started because they didn't have real exit channels. And um, so there has been a real drought uh, over the last 15 years in, in psychiatric drug development. And I think J&J &J was the first company that really, really changed this uh, with being able to show that they were able to get esketamine one of the isomers of ketamine approved in psychiatry. And I think that was, uh, you know, that goes back to the question, you know, why now, right? People suddenly saw the FDA is open to approve a, depending on who you talk to, a psychedelic drug, or at least a dissociative drug, a hallucinogen, for people suffering with depression. Then we had a much better understanding of why psychedelics might work. We had the great body of evidence from academic trials. You now also have this huge burden of depression. The World Health Organization made the world aware that depression is the biggest disease area that uh, humanity is uh, facing. And then uh, I would also point out Michael Pollan, who you might know of, the science author that put out the book on how to change your mind, summarizing the state of the research. And initially it was quite uh, difficult to convince investors that uh, cytosine therapy had merit. And, you know, we, we could get a couple of very contrarian investors like Peter Thiel um, involved and Christian Angermeyer and Mike Novogratz um, that are always investing at the frontier. Um, but then there are obviously much more conservative investors out there with very deep pockets and they stayed much more on the sidelines. 
But actually, when we went out to raise our A financing round, people had begun reading Michael Pollan's book, and that also changed their attitude. And they realized, oh, this is real. Um, this is not some bunch of hippies coming together and faking cl clinical trials, but they realized, oh, there's merit. Great universities are actually doing this work, and uh, great researchers are coming into this field. I think that altogether made it much easier for us to then uh, raise the funding uh, and build the company. Because there were no acquirers for emerging biotechs, there was less innovation coming in psychiatric disorders. So one interesting reflection there is that now that we have companies like Compass or Atai in the market, that might actually create more opportunities for small companies to innovate and have an opportunity to be acquired. So these new, bigger companies emerging in the psychedelic medicine space will actually create more innovation from smaller companies in the future. That is a super important point. And I think it's not only psychedelics, right? I think, you know, psychedelic is a treatment in mental health, like many other treatments, and there will be other great treatments that are going to be developed over the next uh, 10, 20 years. And, you know, I would just point to the recent acquisition of GW Pharma, uh, which was focused on cannabis-derived drugs, mostly CBD and THC, developed for MS and epilepsy. They were acquired for $7 billion by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and Jazz is another player in the uh, mental health space and neurology space. They actually brought the first probably drug that you can kind of remotely put into the category of uh, psychedelic or empathogen to market uh, GHB, uh, which is another regulated drug. Uh, they brought it to market for uh, narcolepsy. They now acquired the uh, cannabis franchise from GW Pharma, forming a giant in the field. And you see many other companies uh, coming back into psychiatry, J&J, &J, obviously, with the uh, Spravato program. So indeed, people are recognizing the need, but also the opportunity of better understanding the brain. And that's what, what it goes back to, right? Once we understand human suffering, how that translates into a brain mechanism, then you can create great treatments. And I think we're just at the beginning of, of that phase. One other topic that we haven't fully addressed, you touched on it, Lars, but I want to talk about the thinking behind the Compass patent strategy. Feels like a, a topic that we need to cover because it's, uh, you know, it comes up. People definitely have addressed some skepticism towards it being a bit overarching in terms of some of the specificities. Um, people in particular seem to gravitate towards the idea of holding hands with the therapist being covered or the, the soft couch. Yeah, patent law is complex. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. So I think first off, I would say that, you know, the rules of patent law are pretty clear. You can only patent something that's novel and inventive and useful. So anything that's uh, out there is not patentable. Now you can recombine known things into something new, which might become then patentable again. And I think, you know, when you look at our IP and granted patents, what you see is that everything that was uh, granted was based on innovation that we have created, be it our synthesis, be it the polymorph, be it routes of administration, uh, formulations, etc. Now, the patents have been heavily challenged, uh, as you said, both uh, in the press uh, or in the psychedelic community and also by uh, competitors that attacked the patents pre-grant and um, sued us post-grant or presented us with a post-grant challenge in the United States and in the UK. It was very interesting is that the US Patent Office reviewed uh, the challenge and they looked at what we did and they agreed that indeed our work was novel and inventive, had not been disclosed in the prior art, and so we had all the right to patent what we patented. Now, people can like that or not like that, but I think this is what you need to do, right? If we do not protect what we are uh, newly creating, um, then there won't be a business uh, in the future because then the issue you're running into is that any other company can also start selling our drug product and run our therapy post-approval. So um, obviously, we have a very strong focus on protecting our work. Now, you mentioned the uh, treatment rooms, wall colors. If you read a little bit 
before that in the patents we're also saying that we're treating humans that doesn't mean that we're patenting humans um, and I think you know I've, I've, I've come on record and said look we're not patenting a set and setting that is not our objective uh, what we felt is what needed to be done is to describe the safe container in which COM360 uh, should be delivered we firmly believe that for patients um, there should be a certain container um, in which uh, that treatment should be delivered including how the therapists interact with the patient how the room should look like that is not to say that if somebody else develops another psychedelic, another treatment, that they couldn't do it in a nice looking room with a sofa in it that has been misconstrued in, in some of the reporting. Got it. So what you're saying is the patents, I guess, are describing your process and your way of going about it. And that kind of is why certain specific components like the color of the wallpaper are included, but that's not the part that necessarily is what you're looking to enforce. It's more the focus on the composition of matter of the Comp360 and the specific protocol of pairing your form of psychotherapy with that product. That is correct. You know, and, and many other things that are covered in these patents, such as digital tools and, and method of use, et cetera. And I think what I would say is that these are PCT filings. Lars, you touched on technology being part of your therapeutic process. I've heard you talk about digital phenotyping, and it would be really awesome to hear about what is digital phenotyping and how you see that integrating into the experience for the patient. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting process, actually. We're building a very large uh, technology team at the moment around the team. Um, that has been working on that over the past uh, periods. And there are a couple of objectives. There are some, some things that have been built already, such as a scalable a therapist training platform. So we have an education platform to train therapists in the theory and uh, some practical aspects of psychedelic therapy before they then engage in in-person training and um, actually sitting in sessions with patients. We've also built a patient preparation platform so that the patients have time to engage with the preparation process at their own time outside of the in-person preparation session. But then we're looking at, you know, how can you incorporate digital therapeutics into the mix? And you mentioned one of such tools, such as digital phenotyping. So already in our phase 2B program, we're deploying a digital phenotyping solution. Because what, what you see in the studies that have been done to date is that, depending on what study you look like, between 50 and 90% of patients respond really well to psychedelic therapy. But then you see the durability of the positive treatment effects vary widely across subjects. So for example, in Robin Carter Harris's study, there was a 90% response rate in the study. There was a great response in all patients uh, that responded until week three. And then you saw some worsening in some patients and other patients didn't go back on any antidepressant uh, until the last measurement, which was at uh, six months, I believe, in that study. And um, anecdotally, people did not go back then after that. Now, that is interesting because ideally, you wouldn't want to let the patients become depressed again, but you would want to catch them early. And the question is, how do you catch them early? And what has been shown in science is that typically your partner that you live with sees that you're becoming depressed before you yourself actually recognize that you're becoming depressed. And that can be uh, 10 to 14 days before the patient, him or herself, realizes that they are depressed again. So there is this worsening period of symptoms um, that are observable to the outside world. And the theory is that you might pick up on these behavioral changes by looking at, for example, mobile phone use and do that passively. So we, you know, we all have the supercomputer in our pockets, which is our mobile phone or iPhone or Android, and we engage with it all the time, right? We are walking around with it, so it knows how much we're moving. We switch it off in the evenings when we go to bed and we pick it up first thing in the morning. So this thing also knows how much we have slept. You know, if you have interrupted sleep, which is a predictor of depression, you know, it understands whether you're in the proximity of other people or not and your acceleration, whether you do sports, etc. So there are many uh, pieces of information that mobile phones can, can track. And I think the interesting bit here is that patients uh, before uh, going into psychedelic therapy, they are in our case depressed. 
And so based on their mobile phone use, we know how they behave when they are depressed. Now we treat them and afterwards, if they do respond favorably and they're out of their depression, we would hope that they have a different behavioral profile that is also trackable via their mobile phone use. And then we have this two phenotypical expression of, of themselves. So once when they are depressed, uh, depressed and once when they are healthy. And then we can see if these different profiles converge over time. And if we observe that convergence, we might infer that that patient is slipping again. And so we can then alert that patient, say, we, uh, we observe that your depression state is worsening and we would recommend you have another psilocybin session. Now, how does that fit into the overall business model? When you look at innovative payment models with payer systems, um, you see that there's something called outcomes-based reimbursement or risk-shared models where you say, look, we take over the management of the patient. We guarantee that we can treat the patient adequately. And only if we are able to do so, we will be paid for it. And so... In depression, we know that whenever a patient becomes depressed again, the chance of that patient recovering out of that depressive episode decreases. And therefore, the kind of holy grail uh, in depression care would be to prevent people from becoming depressed again. And so hopefully in the long run, we will be able to build such a solution that will allow us to predict a patient's uh, depressive or mental health state and then prevent them from becoming depressed again. I want to do a couple of rapid fire questions before we leave. The first one is, what is often misunderstood about Compass Pathways? I think I said that we are a mental health care company and our vision is to create a world of mental well-being. Um, I think we're often reduced to, oh, you're just another biotech. And uh, I think that couldn't be further from the truth. The second question is, what are your thoughts on psychedelic companies that do not offer therapy as part of their clinical trials? It's irresponsible and shouldn't be allowed. What is your view on Oregon's psilocybin therapy measure 109? Yeah, I mean, this is a really strong vote of confidence, right? I was blown away by how many people got behind psilocybin therapy in Oregon. And I think it's just a testimony of the need that's out there. And I think this is something that we're going to see across the world where patients uh, are waking up to the uh, promise of psilocybin therapy and other psychedelic treatments. My quick rapid fire question is, is your job stressful? Uh, which which job isn't stressful? No, I think uh, positive stress, right? I think it's such an amazing thing to be working on. I, I don't perceive that as negative stress. Um, it's a lot of work, uh, but it's great work. It's a good answer. Lars, can you paint the picture of what this psychedelic landscape will look like in 10 years? Yeah, happy to. I think I would discriminate between, you know, psychedelic or or mental health. I think for us, it's, you know, Compass is all about mental health care. Um, so I believe that psychedelic therapies will play a huge role uh, in mental health care. And I think that a great start has been made by ketamine, S-ketamine, MDMA now with a successful phase three program, hopefully on market within the next two years. Psilocybin therapy on market 24, 25, um, and I think then a broadening out into other indications. And so what we're going to see is an explosion of treatment centers. Uh, you know, now every medium-sized city in the United States has a ketamine treatment center. Um, these are morphing into psychedelic uh, or integrated mental health centers at the moment. And I, I believe, you know, when we, when we fast forward, every little village will have such a center within the next 10 years that will be administering these uh, treatments to patients. I think eventually we will move into a world where these will be used as preventative treatments, where uh, we actually don't wait for people to start suffering, but we are aware that there's a strong interplay between psychology and psychiatry and you wouldn't want to wait. And so I believe that uh, indeed within the next uh, 10 years, we will have ubiquitous access to uh, psychedelic therapies for patients that are suffering. And uh, to answer your wider question, Matthias, I think in terms of the psychedelic landscape, I think we will have, at least in the Western world, uh, 
widespread decriminalization of psychedelic therapies or psychedelic experiences for, for people that are not on the, let's say, mental suffering end of the spectrum, but that want to work on themselves for other purposes. And so I, th I see a strong interplay between these. And I think eventually these centers will merge into, into one type of entity. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at businesstripfm. And if you're building a company in psychedelics or looking to get more involved in this space, email me at greg at businesstrip.fm. This episode was co-hosted by myself, Greg Kubin, and Matthias Serebrinski. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. Let's talk business. Let's talk business. Let's talk business. Let's talk business. Matthias and I are co-interviewing. We like chatting with each other, chatting with each other, chatting with each other. It's not just one of us, but it's two of us, two of us, two of us. It's kind of fun. We compliment each other well. We also have been investing in this space. I will wear my investor hat, my investor hat, 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 and ask you rapid fire questions, rapid fire questions. Rapid fire, rapid fire, rapid fire, questions, questions. Good answer. Good answer. Good answer. I'd also add to that 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 we kind of nerdy down. Nerdy down. <laughs> <laughs>